Welcome to the Western Belt podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Removing Obstacles to Our Heart's Desire. The talk was given by Lalit on June 3, 2023, via Zoom. Lalit is a spiritual teacher residing in British Columbia, Canada, who has been a disciple in the Western Baal tradition since 1982. Her teaching style is rooted in the activities and responsibilities of ordinary life. Her books include Waking to Ordinary Life and Cultivating Spiritual Maturity. In this talk, Lalit speaks about the possibility that we have as human beings to open to our heart's desire at the deepest level of essence. She engages conversation with those in attendance about the kind of payment that is needed to remove obstacles with dearly held beliefs and identities that we have set up. During the discussion, she refers to Red Hawk, a poet and the author of Self-Observation, who has written about the spiritual path. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Lalit. All right, so what I would like to start with is trying to get us to hone in better on what is our heart's desire. So we're not just talking about a new car, maybe, or our next date or something. We're talking about heart's desire, something that would impact our whole life forever, as long as we are alive. So we might want to investigate what is our heart's desire and why do we find it elusive? Where does it go? Do we have one? And if we don't get it, then where did it go? What's in front of it? What's behind it? How come our heart's desire seems to be a problem sometimes? We really want to manifest it somehow. We really want to find or exhibit what our heart's desire is. But a lot of times, I think we're not really clear about what is our heart's desire. And in my experience, if I'm going to speak more flamboyantly, the universe doesn't really notice our heart's desires when they're real floppy and lazy and have no matrix. Because we might be a person who goes through a heart's desire every other day. I have a good friend who often says, that her new situation is her dream. One time she was visiting me and I had an old camper on the property and I said, well, you want to stay in the camper? She said, oh, it's been my dream to be able to stay in a little camper in a meadow. That's my dream. I'll stay there forever. And that lasted a couple of weeks. One time she rented an apartment with someone. It was in a, an area that was convenient for her and the situation was really good people. So she says, my dream to have an apartment like this with these good people. It's been my dream my whole life. So sometimes we have these kind of things. 
One time, the same person, she's famous. She laughs about this, so I'm not being mean to her, but she decided that her dream job would be to work on an organic farm. So she gets a job on an organic farm not far from here. And she said, oh, I'm I'm living my dream. My heart's desire has always been to do this organic farm, and I love it. And then she came across obstacles. And what were her obstacles? One of her obstacles was she discovered that she wanted to be the boss of everything, and she wasn't. She had hoped that this guy with the organic farm was somehow miraculously going to include her as a full partner and she would get to make decisions and be the boss and have an organic farm. But she wasn't aware of all of those little nuances. So she said to me, I'm living my dream. I'm living my dream. And then a few weeks later, she said, you know, this happened and that happened. And maybe I'm not going to stay there. I thought I'd stay there forever, but maybe not. And when I asked her, what happened to your dream? What happened? This was your heart's desire. She said, well, she referred to the guy who owned the farm, who had developed the farm, who had put all of his heart and soul into the farm. She referred to him, well, that guy won't let me make any decisions. So she was discovering that one of the obstacles to that temporary heart's desire was what she called her desire to own it, have it, get it. And we have this about everything. When we're talking about our heart's desires, often we have this feeling that if we could just reach for it, if we could just grab it and have it, maybe it would take more money. Maybe it would take a certain personal connection. But we want to grab it and own it. We never say to ourselves, gee, I would like to lightly have the perfume of my heart's desire to inform my environment. And we don't say, well, I wish for all of your heart's desires to come true. We don't usually say that. We all usually say, well, first of all, let's handle my heart's desire. So we have all of these caveats. So what I would like to do as a game, and I've played this exercise before, and it's very, very telling. I know it's short notice, but I would like you to Tell me an example of your heart's desire. I'd like some examples. What currently is your heart's desire? And the rest of the question is, and what would you be willing to pay? What would you be willing to pay for this heart's desire? I know you're going to be hesitant, but it's only an hour and a half. How hard can it be? What's your heart's desire? And what are you willing to pay? I'd like to write a book for teens, a nonfiction book that really reaches them and introduces some spiritual concepts in a very fun way. And so what would you be willing to pay to remove your obstacles? Yeah, I'd have to give up a lot of distractions. Such as? You know, I guess just busy work, things that fill up your day and then you wonder, what did I do? Frittering away the day, I guess. Frittering away our life. Mm -hmm. Possibly. And internetting, there's always that. Always that. Okay. Who else? Who's going to say your heart's desire and what would you be willing to pay? Why would you bother to come to a talk like this if you weren't even curious? I'd like to find more peace within. I'd like to be able to let go more of my 
impatience and annoyance that keeps me separated from others. I'm willing to be this, the crux of my self-observation. So for it to be the crux of your self-observation, what would you have to give up or do? What coin, what coin do we have available to us that we could pay? What do we think is the currency here for what we would have to pay? So more peace within. I think will, my own self-will is a good coin to pay out for wanting these things for myself. So just for the heck of it, so let's say you're willing to pay some of your self-will. What if self-will has to do with infringing on our comfort zone? Let's say our self-will means, well, I've got my diet set a certain way. I've got my neighborhood set up. I've got my house arranged. The furniture is a certain way. I go to spiritual talks of a certain type. If we take this idea of self-will... We can't even brush our teeth. I mean, really, we got a certain toothbrush. Maybe it's electric. Maybe it's a water pick. Maybe it's the freebie from the dentist. We can't even brush our teeth without this self-will department. Very sticky. So she wants to write a book. She's saying, well, I'm a bit distracted here. And I really want to focus on my heart's desire. So the heart's desire, more peace within That's different than I want to write a book, but are we willing to actually shift into discomfort? Are we actually willing to shift into suffering or discomfort or scary stuff? Like, let's say, hypothetically, he is a strong vegan practitioner. And he's saying, well, I'd like to give up my self-will, but don't make me eat cheese. It could be anything. It's the silliest stuff that's in the way of our heart's desires. It's the silliest stuff. So we say, I would be willing to pay with my self-will. We need to be careful what we ask for here, what it means. If I go to his house and I say, okay, you're giving up your self-will. I would like to rearrange your furniture and I would like to go into your refrigerator and throw out everything I don't want. It's for your good because, you know, I'm loosening up your self-will here because you're going to get some peace of mind within over here. Just let me throw out your refrigerator or disturb your furniture. Well, I'm working up towards that. Mm-hmm. I'm at my level right now. Yeah. And that's my suffering. Because if I really want that peace inside, I have to be able to abide with, especially my wife, but with the otherness that's out there. And I get practice every day, every single day I get practice with this. And I see what it takes. And it's interesting because there are some times when my will is very strong. And then there are other times when I'm completely mechanical and I fall back into who I am and that blood rushes to my head and I get annoyed. So it's a long-term process for me. It's long-term. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned you fall back into who you are. So mm-hmm. this obstacle business has a lot to do with our identities. I'm the one with the pink toothbrush. I'm the one with special cheese. I'm the one who needs to get a certain amount of money. 
That's me. That's who it is that wants peace within her. That's who it is that wants this book. So if God were a friendly neighbor and would write down some instructions, you know, if God could send you a note and say, okay, your heart's desire is writing a book. Here's what you got to pay. You've got to move yourself into a two-bedroom house with all your kids. It's for your own good. She needs six bedrooms for herself and all of her kids and stuff. So what if I say, for your heart's desire, you've got to pay this giant discomfort. You've got to move into a two-bedroom house. Well, then she might think, Lali, you know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about really big other stuff that would get me a book contract. We never know what it is when we're thinking of our heart's desire. Any of us could drop dead at a moment's notice and boom, there goes our chances for even thinking about our heart's desire. So it's not just for oldies to come up with their heart's desires. It's for everybody. Who else would be willing to give some examples of what is your current heart's desire and what would you be willing to pay to have that come to fruition in this lifetime, right now, in this life? I'd like to make friends with the longing that I experience. Okay. And so what would you be willing to pay for that to be true of you? I guess I'd have to give up some dearly held beliefs. Giving up some dearly held beliefs. Oh, now you're scaring everybody. No one's going to raise their hand now. She's saying maybe you have to give up some dearly held beliefs. So that's nasty. So what kind of a dearly held belief is kind of on the table? You could pay it. Well, I know that something that feeds practice is being in nature and I'm getting better at it. But I think that I've always told myself that I'm not really like a country person. I'm I'm more of a city person and I couldn't ever live in the country. And that would be an example. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, because if there was going to be an authority that wrote you a note, Some of us, our heart's desire might include being on a beach or being near the ocean or living a little hut in the woods by a creek and somebody brings us gourmet food every day, you know, but we're out in the nature. And then if you got a note that said, okay, I've arranged for you to live in this hut by the river, clean water rushing by, friends will visit now and then, but you're going to be out there and there's some bugs and stuff because it's in the woods. You might go, Oh, no, it's the price is way too high. And someone else would be saying, I vote for that. I could easily pay that price. So this whole price business gets a little bit fuzzy. Anyone else have an example of your heart's desire and what price you'd be willing to pay? You Zoomers that are coming in here today, I'm sitting in the Darshan Hall here at our community headquarters. We discuss these kind of things quite a bit. And I don't do these talks very often. So this might be it for the whole year. This is your chance. What is your heart's desire? What are you willing to pay? So my heart's desire is to be a successful and highly paid artist, which sometimes happens, but it's not something very consistent for me. And so far, the price I've been willing to pay has been to work hard at trying to make things happen. And I'm suspecting that The price that I need to pay might be something about relaxing in a certain way, letting things happen, 
not trying to push the river, those sort of cliche things. Yeah, I'm trying to figure that out, not just mentally, but in a way that I can actually do without snapping back into being stressed out. Well, would you be willing to be less greedy? Uh, yeah. How much less greedy? 50% less greed or 10%? Like how much less greedy would you be willing to pay? Well, I don't think of myself as being greedy, but I'll take your word for it. Since I'm saying I want to be well paid. You know, we would like success. So maybe greed for a highly paid artist. Maybe greed isn't the right word. Maybe we lust after it or we would like to gather that resource to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when we really want something, we have all kind of ulterior motives. So I was just using that as an example. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can be greedy, I guess. 10% less greedy, that sounds pretty good. Probably I need to be 60% less greedy. Just (laughs) pull a number out of the air, right? You want to pay my bills, though. I mean, that's part of the definition of being successful. Yeah. So that's a good example about what kind of bills do we have? How have we set up our current identity, who we think we are? So an artist would like to be a successful artist and not just successful. We don't know what successful means to him, but he would like to be highly paid to meet his financial needs. We don't know what his financial needs are, but if he says to us, well, my financial needs are my car collection. I've got five cars. I need a mechanic for each one and a separate garage for each one. And my overhead's pretty high. Some of us might say, oh, why do you need so many cars? Or somebody else might say, you only have five or 10 cars. You need 28. We have all of our opinions. But if he has to sustain that in order to meet his heart's desire, have we set up an identity that is unsustainable and incompatible with our heart's desire? We have set up an identity. We have set up who we believe ourselves to be. And very often it's incompatible with our heart's desire, but we don't yet know it. So as an example, she wants to write a book. She'd like to have a successful book, great motivation. She would like to help teenagers. And she reports how she spends a lot of her time, how she feels like maybe she gets distracted and she wastes her time. So she has set up herself, part of her identity, to somebody who is on the internet a lot. She's savvy about internet. She's learned some about technology. She's a smart mom who guides her kids along. She gets along okay with her ex-husband. You know, that's a package. She's about to buy a new house. That's part of the package. So heart's desire should be top of our list. That's the kind of heart desire I'm talking about. Like what is really up there at the top of our list? And how have we arranged our lifestyle? If we want to be Cosme, we can say, oh, maybe ego did it. That bad ego made me have this identity or arranged my lifestyle. But in a distracted lifestyle, it's not compatible with the time and focus it would take to write this book that's at the moment, top of the heart's desire list. We should be wondering about these things as you refresh your heart's desire as we talk about this. Who do you believe yourself to be? That one that you currently believe yourself to be That's the one who's given out these hypothetical heart's desires to start off with. That identity, whatever you have it currently packaged, that's the one who's deciding your heart's desire. So 
If that is the case, then we're talking psychology. We're talking neurotic mind. We're talking about the ups and downs of how we think we either succeed or fail, how we think we are being betrayed or not, how we are being hurt or not, all the things that go on in ordinary life that make us feel like I'm feeling happy today, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling closer to my heart's desire, I'm feeling not so close to my heart's desire. So a lot of peripheral stuff goes on. So who else has a current example at the moment? I'm in a phase of where I kind of have absolutely no idea what my heart's desire is. And I wanted to just say one little awareness and see if you guys can take it anywhere is a lot of the communication in the world is goes from 3D to 5D. And no one talks about the fourth dimension. They talk about going from, from three to the fifth dimension. And this is where I think the heart's desire lies in because heart's desire is based off of a time-space continuum. And from the little bit I know about the fourth dimension, it's the dimension in which time comes into the equation. So my heart's desire is just to sit in it and be here redefining what heart's desire even is. So I'm curious. I'm always curious. So if my questions cross somebody's line, you can just hold up your hand and say time's up or something. But I'm curious, what kind of habits do you have on a daily basis that help you just sit in it, as you said? I'm quite a mental creature. As many of us are. Red Hawk introduced me into self-observation after I had about four years of metaphysical school. And I utilized a simple form of contemplation, and it's connected to the I Ching. So what's yeah. one of your current attractive obsessions? Answering who, what, where, why when and not to worry about the how but with this time loop that i find myself so attracted to in patience let's just play with this idea because we're all obsessed with something identified as the guy used to be a mental creature he still is but he's got it more worked out and he studied metaphysics and now he can hold still and he's getting some patience okay so what if That is exactly how you will die with that package till your last breath. Does that sound happy? I am completely content with where my life is. Do I want more? Of course, I'm a human. So if I was going to be a little confrontive, I think he won't get his feelings hurt, right? So if we were going to have a show of hands, who believes him that he's content Hypothetically, based on what he's saying, how many of us would say we believe that he's content? We don't even know what he means by content, but would we believe it? (laughs) (laughs) Do we believe about any of us? Do we believe the story we tell about our identity 
your time loop and you studied metaphysics, you know, you're talking to the queen of metaphysics study here. So been there, done that. I mean, and I get that it is fascinating, but takes one to know one. And I don't believe you. We were all raising hands. Then I don't believe that you are contented. Let's put this a different way. Here's the metaphysics for you. There are plenty of layers of reality. If we're going to take a metaphysical example, many layers of reality. You mentioned one to five, and then you leaped over four. Well, I'm here to tell you that that model, the levels, the dimensions, one, two, three, four, you like four better, five, not so much, don't leap over the middle. That whole thing, what if it is incorrect? What if it's incorrect? If you ask me if I think it's incorrect, I'd say, hell yeah, that's very incorrect. But you don't know me. So why would you believe me? But I'm suggesting that you be a little suspicious about your metaphysical model because it's very, very limited compared to what's possible for a human being in this lifetime. And you did mention that you weren't sure, you know, what was your heart's desire and that you are contented with this loop. We're all contented. You're not the only one. Everyone's contented if they actually can keep their loop solid at all. And mental types are good at this. There's lots of us are mental types. Not me, probably, but I'm a farmer. What can you say? So here's our current example, bravely stating this. And you're not alone in this. But my point is that that package, that identity is built is intentionally, specifically, cleverly built by a really smart mind and a well-schooled ego to stay in that identity forever. In this case, forever, we're just talking about this lifetime. We won't get into life and death and all of that. So what if Lalit isn't just a kooky old lady over here, but what if there's something to this? This touches on our dearly held beliefs. So in this case, maybe our dearly held belief is, what about this fourth dimension? I'm going to try not to say bad curse words, so I'll say, what the heck about that fourth dimension? For example, so the price that you would pay in this example would be to have your mental construct at least cracked up, maybe broken, but that's too extreme. So the price you might have to pay to actually expand the view of what's possible outside of this dimensional loop that you have self-built, based on my decades of experience with this stuff, and I certainly have gone deeply into metaphysics and alchemy, I think that somebody could break out of this loop. There's people in the room nodding here. You don't see them. They're nodding. I think that you could do it. You would have to pay the price. That's a title for another talk, I guess. But how are we going to pay these prices? And what what do we have that we could pay with? Are we strong enough to take a risk? Are we willing to have our identity shaken up? Are we willing to put something down and walk away or pick something up that we never imagined? I'm assuming you don't have a pack of kids at your house. Is that correct? No, nope, nope. Good thing you didn't have the same spiritual master I did. Many of you aren't involved in those kind of spiritual schools, but sometimes he would say, just wait till you have kids. That really shakes up your fourth dimension loop right there because children don't stay in one dimension, that's for sure. 
mental types get in the loop and it's a strong loop. And the identity is like cement. But your best asset is that, as Red Hawk has pointed out many times, our best asset is, Lord have mercy, I wish to work. And the mind says, I wish to work, but only in the fourth dimension. Okay. So there's a little bit of fuzziness there. So anyone else, if you put your heart's desire out into the space that we're creating here, part of the dynamic of that is that some helpful, good attention comes your way. This is what removing obstacles, it's not painless. Removing obstacles to our heart's desire, from Eagle's point of view, is not always going to be our favorite comfort zone. But if we come to this talk and we're interested in this topic, just hypothetically, we could play around with it. Well, how about this heart's desire? How about these obstacles? You mentioned the prayer, Lord, have mercy, I wish to work. Yeah. I would like my heart's desire to be true to that because that's part of the practice that I am engaged in now. And I don't feel very brave about that very often. So this whole idea of challenging my own identity, I oftentimes see that I feel smaller for that to be something that is alive. I don't feel very brave about this. Wishing to work. You know what some of those spiritual schools say? Well, we can want to want to want to wish to work. They get all these wants way back here in the line, or you can be on the hot seat, or sometimes we have this image of fire. You can be close to the fire or far away or in the next neighborhood or whatever. Or your hair on fire. Yep, practice like your hair's on fire. Okay, this is being brave, I hope. Part of what I'm willing to pay for is to walk away from all of those spiritual truisms that I don't really embody. But that one prayer, Lord have mercy, I wish to work, embodies one of my biggest struggles, which is this relationship with a Lord, that word Lord, which is something much bigger than that, something much more profound than that. As long as I keep myself small and scared, I'm not willing to pay that price to find out what that is. You were saying the price might be walking away from the truisms that you don't embody and that scare you. That could be a price, walking away from Well, I don't think truisms is the word, but the... Spiritual sayings that come up in a lot of... Yes, spiritual sayings. Okay, good. Yeah. Sayings that come up in a lot of Dharma. Yeah. This is a very good example. How can we move obstacles when the ordinary neurotic mind itself is our biggest obstacle? (laughs) so what other avenue of investigation do we have and this is the beauty of as a human being in relationship to this intuition that you're describing you're describing an intuition of the beloved as the sufis would say okay even in our community here in british columbia we have some people who really get kind of annoyed at Hindu language, or they get annoyed at Christian language, or we like the word beloved, but we don't like the word God, or we like the word 
insight, but we don't like the word prayer because this is all how our identities get shaken up. I'm the one who doesn't like the word God, but I like the word beloved. These are loops that are resting in ordinary mind. And not that we go crazy, but that might be part of the price. So let's say, well, I'm really scared to pay the price that I intuit. Hmm. I had a very good friend who was dying of cancer and she had some poetry, a little poetry book that was very inspiring to her, but it also talked a lot about heart's desire and what it would take to be free. And it was a spiritual book that used words like liberation and enlightenment, but also it used this word adoration in this poetry book. It used this word adoration in relationship to something larger than ourselves. So she had a word for this. And adoration was one of the themes of this little poetry book. And it was very inspiring to her. And she kept it under her bed. And as she was dying, this is true. She was my close friend. As she was dying, she said to me that just thinking about that book under her bed scared her so bad that it made her cry. And that every time she put her hand under the bed to bring that out, because she loved that poetry. And it so much spoke to her heart. It also scared her to such a depth that she could hardly bring herself to bring that poetry of adoration out from under her bed. Just thinking about it, she said, scared her. This is how strongly that particular thing affected her fears. She told me, she said, the price is so high. And she said, it's Eagle's price. She was a spiritual practitioner And she had been dying for a while and she had investigated a lot of these things. So when she said the price was too high, that meant something to her that might be different than us. We might think, what the heck, get out the book and read something. Who cares? But she had investigated that one thing. So there might be one thing, instead of making it complicated and so big with all these spiritual phrases that set the bar really high. I would say be the best tiny scared person you can possibly be and get something tiny. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I think I can do that. (laughs) You're all good. Obstacle removal. See, that wasn't so. Obstacle removal. (laughs) That's what I came for. Thanks. (laughs) Anyone else would like to join in the recipe here? That love, the heart's desire, is that scary thing. The idea of how that would change me to give myself to it. Because that's all the unknown. That's all unknown. How giving myself to my heart's desire would affect me and change me. That's the scary part for me. And I think that's why the neurotic part of myself dances around it and doesn't actually sit down and get to it in terms of my heart's desire. I think it has to do with the creative process as well. For me, I'd like to write this book. I've done a lot of writing, but not the book. And when I sit down to start writing, I'm looking at this blank piece of paper. (laughs) And that scares me. Even the word blank scares everybody. Never mind blank piece of paper, blank life, blank 
bank account, blank sex life, blank amount of weight. Are we too fat or too skinny? You know, the word blank, even all by itself, is a red flag to ego. Blank anything. So we could apply it to, you know, a blank piece of paper if we're a writer and you're a good writer. So it's not just a blank piece of paper that's scaring us. We are not comfortable with the unknown. That's it. That's really the thing. We're not comfortable with the unknown. This idea of, wow, I'm a writer and I'm faced with a blank page. We could also say, I am a lover and I am longing for my beloved. Never mind the whole write the book blank page. That is a side effect of your personal longing for that which holds your heart. So blank page is symbolic to you. So for you, removing obstacles for this heart's desire would change you. What scares you is the particular you that you're choosing out of your package. We all have a lot of eyes and lots of choices inside. And at any given moment, one of them gets to pop up and say, I have a heart's desire or I'm afraid of something. And so that particular voice gets to say, well, I'm a writer. I'm afraid of the blank page. But the louder voice often is what we might call your essence, the eye of your essence, your heart's desire. We could also relanguage and say the desire of your essence and that longing that you have to fill the page. If we wanted to relanguage it just for the sake of the experiment, I'm longing for that which I do not yet know. That is much more to the point. We used to make up prayers when we were young women. We'd make up stuff because we didn't know. We figured we'd cover all the bases and make up a whole bunch in case one of them works. Who knows? So we had this prayer that we worked up. And part of it was beloved one whom I do not know. And then we updated it because that sounded too permanent. So we made it beloved one whom I do not yet know because we thought, well, that is going to help us be a little fluid in here, beloved one. You know, we weren't talking about God or a particular deity or anything, but we wanted to indicate that longing of the heart. What kind of thing does a heart, what kind of a resource does one's heart pay with? So ego has its idea of what kind of stuff you're going to have to pay. Oh, I'll have to pay with my sex life or my diet or my money or my car or something. But essence pays with adoration. Essence pays with whatever we define that adoration or that love or that attention. There's so many words that human beings try to use to point to it, but it seems impossible. So we say it's a blank page. It's the unknown. If I am okay with the unknown, that will change me forever. And I think that's true. If we're okay, beloved one whom I do not yet know, as an example, everybody has to figure out what suits you. But if that becomes okay, we don't have to decide on a dimension or a level. We don't have to decide if we like 
medical treatments or government proclamations or big bank accounts, little bank accounts. We don't even care about. We say blank pages. That's all I've got. Hooray. And then we throw the blank pages and we get as many blank pages as we like. Maybe we become a blank page collector. That would be fun. If you had so many blank pages that it just became ordinary, you'd probably just use it for fire starter. It'd be a big zero. So change your language with these heart's desires. I'm afraid it would change me forever. I'm a writer and I see this blank page. Upscale your heart's desire, even if it's temporary, to something outrageously bigger. You can always squeeze it back down hard later, temporarily. You can smush it out there as big as you can. Beloved one whom I do not yet know. Thank God you showed me that blank page because now I'm on the right track. What if? This is my big fat opinion. I think that's true about you. That's what I say. But, you know, that's my opinion. Okay, anyone else have a heart's desire? We've been talking a lot about things. My heart's desire is this thing or this form. And for me, that just doesn't seem like the thing. No, I'm getting to it. Yeah, but I'm speaking personally. You're evoking this. Yeah. What is it that really is my heart's desire? Longing for that which I do not yet know, and that strikes a chord. Because I can't say that I know for sure what that is. But I do have faith that there is something that I long for. So what would I pay for that if I don't know exactly what it is? Ah, that is a good question. And I have a list of things that you could pay. You could pay with lust. Who would be willing to give up lust? Who would be willing to give up your anger? Who would be willing to give up your greed? Who would be willing to give up your bad temper? For starters, just to kind of loosen ourselves up. We lost your sound. You lost my sound. Yeah, the last couple of minutes, we couldn't hear you. I didn't lose her. Ghost. Uh-oh, that was the ghost. That was Miss Theodore, okay. I was going to watch your screen, and if you popped up behind you, I was going to go. We have lots of entities visiting tonight. <laughs> There's always lots of entities. Some of us like language like that. Some of us get upset. I like that language. I have this anti-Lalit's rule number something. If you don't know what to do with your heart's desire, if you don't know what to do with your life, there's plenty of other entities that do. <laughs> the Buddhists call this devouring demons. So we're kind of fuzzy. When we come to these kind of talks, we're not that fuzzy because we whomped it up to come to the topic, at least. We come and we're thinking about it, but then we realize, oh, we're scared. Maybe we're confused. Maybe we're self-critical. Maybe we feel guilty because we think there's some spiritual stuff we should have been doing. We didn't do it. So God's not going to like us. We'll never get our heart's desire. So we pay with lust, greed, anger, bad temper. We pay with cruelty. Lots of spiritual traditions come up with teachings. I'm thinking of the Bodhisattva path of the Buddhists, for example. That's what you pay. That's a pretty big price. I don't know any bodhisattvas personally, but in theory, 
It sounds like a hard job. Currency of the heart is adoration. Yeah, and the currency of the heart is adoration. So how are we going to even use it? We spend it all the time, this adoration business, through our distracted identities because of how we've set up our life and our identities. So I'm not saying we should become vegetables, cancel our identities, and we don't have personalities anymore. I'm saying we need to investigate this currency that a human being potentially has in relationship to this heart's desire. What currencies do we have? That's what you pay with. You pay with your lust. You pay with your greed. You pay with your harm to others. I pay all the time for my sometimes less than tactful speech. Put it nicely. So we all have our identities to start off with, but it's not the price of, well, I should get off the internet. Yeah, I should get off the internet. No question. Small and frightened. That's actually an asset to spend that currency of adoration. Small is good. Small works. Adoration has no size. Adoration being the currency of the heart. My husband's sitting here. He's the one who said that, actually. Currency of the heart in this whole obstacle removal business. And we intuit it. Now, the Sufis say this is the perfume of the beloved. When we're studying spiritual traditions, or we're studying metaphysics, which I have, or alchemy, which I have. I've studied all these things. Many of us, we like to read, we like to study. And over all my decades of practice, I've gotten curious about all of these things. And I have discovered that that collection of information that I have could be endless. I could go to my last breath in this lifetime and say, I think I'd like to be a race car driver. Could be anything that we now are captivated by. Many of us, it's the internet. We have to start somewhere, but we're paying with the obstacles that we have put up ourselves and we have created an identity through which we can be greedy or lustful. We have these packages. So we need our package because we're alive, but there's much more possible. Well, for some of us, we think, well, what's faith? That's another commodity, a resource. To me, it's similar to adoration. The thing that occurs to me is that to give up these things of lust and greed and anger and all the rest, it has to come from conscience. Mm -hmm. I can't just say, okay, I'm just going to pretend that these things don't exist. I mean, there's probably some value to not manifesting them, but if it doesn't really come from me, mm -hmm. and I'm just kind of warding these things off, I'm not sure it works. Yeah. And what about this? Nobody ever says, I think I'll give up happiness. I think I'll give up kindness. I think I'll give up gratitude. We always want to give up the main stuff that gets mentioned in spiritual books, stuff that we consider bad, like greed and lust and anger and stuff. But as long as we're deciding on prices to pay, we're going to have to give up some of our incorrect definitions of what is greedy. One time I was really sick and a healer was visiting in town and she was a nun. And I learned that she was going to be in town. So I went to see her 
And she had a couple of acolytes with her. She was a full-on nun, had been a nun for a long time. And it wasn't easy to get to see her because she traveled around to different monasteries healing. And sometimes she would talk to somebody, word of mouth, which is how I found out about her. So I went to see this nun. And she says, lay down on this table. I got onto this long massage table and she looked at me and she's touching me and we're kind of talking. And she says something like, what do you think you're the most greedy for? And I named a bunch of stuff. I can't even remember. I named some things. And then she says, well, what are you doing? I said, I live on this ashram and I study spiritual things. And she says, oh, I've seen this before. You're greedy for God, she says. That's what she said. I've seen this before. We see this in the monastery. You're greedy for God. I had never even thought of it. I never occurred to me that greed for God would be a mental construct. I said, you know, I don't think I'm that greedy. And she says, yes, you are. You're greedy for God. She says something like, even that needs to be investigated. I'll never forget that nun pointing at me and saying, oh, you know. I thought, oh, greedy for God, that sounds good. But I was hiding behind that as my uh, spiritual identity. So everything in this obstacle removal business, everything is on the table. And it doesn't mean we should dismantle ourselves and become mentally unstable and emotionally broken. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about as practitioners investigating our work on self, whatever that means to us, we should question how serious are we really? These are hearts desires, writing a book more peace within, make friends with this longing as a fiery thing that gets so painful, like an illness. That doesn't sound very friendly for longing, so to speak, to be a highly paid artist as a heart's desire. And I know some of you has other types of heart's desires, but in the worldly sense, we have our worldly heart's desires. But I'm talking about identifying maybe our worldly heart's desires and then going deeper and deeper. So then we come to, if I actually pierce this heart's desire, it's terrifying. It's terrifying to ego because ego doesn't know how to rest in a heart's desire. So it makes up shit all the time. And it's endless. That's why we can have a different heart's desire every different year as we grow older. Very curious how these things pile up. Well, I was thinking that what I could pay with, with what I do pay with, to whatever amount I pay, is with my willingness to suffer, mm -hmm. my willingness to be honest, ruthlessly honest, as they say, mm -hmm. and to be with what it is that's difficult and to inquire. About mm -hmm. And yeah, I do have some faith that in the process, I'll be led. And this thing about accepting the unknown, my gosh. Mm -hmm. And sometimes have a little courage. Takes courage. It does take courage. Any spiritual path takes courage. Because as soon as we set foot on any path of work on self, ego jumps in with its whole basket of fears. And so Eagle says, well, if you're going to do this path, why don't you do this little package 
over here and call it a religion or this package over here and call it a yoga school or this package over here, call it metaphysics or why don't you put your foot on the alchemy path so that ego then has the opportunity to grab a hold of it, arrange it mentally, and then we feel safe. We feel content. Contentment isn't all it's cracked up to be, I have to say. That would be a warning signal. If contentment was our constant assessment for ourselves in the psychological sense, not the cosmic sense, then for some of us, that could be a red flag that we're becoming caught in a loop. That's a phrase that applies to a lot of things. But about willing to suffer, how often do we even want to think about that? One of the things that you say here in the write-up, Lalit, is the only problem is such a price is not something you can pay as a matter of will, as though it's a choice you can make. And so we have spiritual practice. So you ask, what are you willing to pay? But is it something that we actually can pay? So we pay with our attention. We pay with our effort. We pay with the longing that we sustain, which some of us find painful. I've heard people say that it's very painful. Are we willing to sustain the tension and the pressure of this price? Even saying we have to pay a price. If I was rich, I would say, well, I'd rather pay a million dollars than suffer. Could I get around it? Could I not suffer if I had enough money? This is how ego thinks. So the idea that we can't pay with will, I was speaking there, I believe, from the point of view of ordinary will, ordinary mind, that kind of will. I wasn't speaking about the will of the heart the will of the heart's desire. And in that case, the word will kind of implies a force. And so really we're talking about changing the language maybe because you can't willfully decide from ordinary mind's point of view, our worldly point of view, well, if I just did enough spiritual practice, I'll get a prize at the end. We don't get a prize and we might suffer. We all suffer. I suffer if I stub my toe. I mean, it could be anything. Longing for me is my heart's desire. And as part of longing, I have been exploring nothingness mm -hmm. as my heart's desire mm -hmm. and being willing to pay my identification. Mm -hmm. But at that moment, there's no longer me paying identification. There's no identification, but that's the currency to nothingness. So that's a paradox. That's a paradox. <laughs> we were talking about paradox this morning here. And Paradox was very beautifully written in the introduction to Lee Lozowick's new book, Thunder Perfect Mind. Paradox was pointed to as this priceless transition point between right and wrong, between identity and no identity, between feeling comfortable, not feeling comfortable, and all of these big archetypes that seem opposite. And we were talking about the blending of that in sadhana, resulting in this being paradox comes into the situation. The introduction to this new book, Thunder Perfect Mind, is very insightful. I haven't read the book yet. I only got through part of the introduction. I thought it was extraordinarily well done. Lots of insight just in the introduction. Of course, that was written by my good friend, but not just because I like her. She wrote this introduction brilliantly, and it speaks to the heart's desire. It speaks to the divine feminine, speaks to the blending of the masculine and feminine, but the introduction points to this 
paradox between opposites. That's where the heart's desire rests. It's the paradox between the opposites, male and female, up and down, right and wrong, suffering, not suffering. The paradox between opposites is where we find the productive tension that actually possibly produces insight in us as we set foot on a path, whatever our path is. Those kind of things inspire us. We all look for what inspires us, but we can't pay willfully. In other words, whatever I is in charge of me at the moment can't think up, well, I'll pay with my car collection. I'll pay with my bank account. I'll pay with my this or my that. Pain by will produces the neurotic desire of ordinary mind. That's what we produce. So to produce the heart's desire in the sense that we're speaking about here, to produce the heart's desire, paradox is one of our biggest friends. And it's very uncomfortable, very mind-boggling, very useful. I label it within myself falling away. Uh-huh. Whenever you do the work, change in the physical just happens. Something falls away. Something about this falling away phrase. We often look to various buffers because falling away is scary. So we have money, food, sex, internet, drugs, alcohol, or whatever. And we tell ourselves, well, these things are helping us. They assist us in knowing God because it makes us feel high or love or et cetera. How can you let things fall away when you're repackaging as fast as you can with, in many cases, the buffers that we use daily to help, quote, hold us together? Of course, we need some buffers, healthy ones. Hopefully, that's a whole nother topic, buffers in spiritual practice or not. But the idea of using our will, not using our will. Heart's desire, not heart's desire, scared, not scared. All of these things are fears of the mind based on the identity that we have chosen. So what scares you won't scare me. But when things fall away, Emma Children, another wonderful spiritual teacher, she has a book, When Things Fall Apart. I think I read the book decades ago, and I don't remember anything except the title, When Things Fall Apart, because it's profoundly scary. Unless we wend our way along and we think, okay, blank page, scared little girl, whatever our different eyes are afraid of having as obstacles. The trick that I have found is to keep going. Never stop. Take another step on your path. Keep going. You go deeper. There's a lot of space when you go deep. So many of us think spiritualness is up and out and up in the sky and light and beautiful and everything, but down and under, that's where the real gold is. Falling away, you know, that's hard to sustain. This is where some spiritual schools come in handy because they give us some tools to create the stamina to go there. Without those tools, it's a crash or a crash. Lalit, 
Can you speak a little more about adoration? Because just being spoken, it's another concept, unless I have intuited it or tasted it. What are the qualities that build adoration or that fuel adoration? Fearlessness. Fearlessness. How do we get fearlessness? It's different for everyone. We're all afraid of different things. You probably have expressed this beautifully in poetry. Give us an example of adoration. I don't have a poem on the tip of my tongue, but the closest thing for me doesn't have words. It's pure silence. It's the silence or it's the night sky or Mm -hmm. it's being lost in that. Mm -hmm. So to be fearless is to be awestruck would be another way to language that, to be awestruck, struck with awe. And sometimes we're awestruck, but we think we're terrified. And as we mature in these things, we're willing to risk being startled or filled with awe or not. Adoration is a beautiful word. It calls up all kinds of images, different images for different people. And I'm not talking about the psychological adoration of just codependent relationships or something. I'm talking about the full attention of our physical, subtle existence becomes captured by this wordless thing you're pointing to. It's captured in an instant. It's hinted at with a night sky, for example, or sometimes with a birth of a child. I used to be a midwife. And those moments where the baby slips out over and over and over is an extraordinary moment where fearlessness is called for, but it's also awesome in that moment. So poetry tries to point to that. Red Hawk's poetry, of course, he goes at it from every different direction and it's very inspiring. But I agree that to pin it down as a definition would only work for the person speaking it a little bit. These things are so individual because now we're talking about our personal individual spiritual practice we're not talking grand cosmic scheme here we're talking about your obstacles your heart's desire your effort your life we don't want our last breath to be i wonder if it's time to think of my heart's desire or our last breath being gee i didn't take it seriously You said a little bit ago, paying with will, mental will, produces neurotic mind's desires, something along those lines. Previous to that, you referred to the will of the heart as like a different type of will. Like my observation is that the will of the mind is rather forceful and trying to impose, and the will of the heart is open and has no agenda. Mm -hmm. It's almost like I'm feeling my mind wanting to figure out how to use the will of the heart now. But like, I'm not sure if that's <laughs> the, the, the right question to be well, asked. I have no definition for it. Yeah, I'm hinting at something. I'm trying to offer my own personal experience with language that's hard to define yeah. so that someone like you doesn't get all tangled up. Okay, this is probably the end. I'll, I'll throw Mary Magdalene in there. That's adoration. There you go. Mary Magdalene. Hooray for Mary Magdalene. 